are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we're picking up this evening again with step number 26 on discernment. So we're moving uh, along here. We only have a few more steps uh, before we finish the text. Uh, This is one of the longest, as you probably noticed. And as we've discussed in past weeks, John sees discernment as the fruit of humility that uh, he who is humbled will be exalted. We are raised up and the uh, mind and the heart are purified. The noose is purified, the eye of the heart. Uh, The impediments of the passions have been overcome uh, in large measure. And so one develops the capacity to discern, to comprehend the things of God, as well as one's own sins. And as we see, uh, even in this step, times the capacity to see the, the sins of others. and uh, But it touches upon every aspect of the spiritual life, our capacity uh, to discern the wiles of the, of the demons, uh, the different paths that God sets before us, uh, why the demons withdraw at certain points. And so there's a lot here for us to consider it is very important for the spiritual life. We are picking up with number 105 on page 204. There are many ways of piety and perdition. That is why it often happens that a way that is unsuitable for one just fits another, and the intention of both is acceptable to the Lord. And so many ways to perdition and piety Uh, many paths, uh, certainly by which we can be sanctified. And uh, it is the intention of the heart that is most important in what God sees, uh, that certainly uh, an individual can choose a path that is wholly unsuited for himself and open himself to uh, perdition uh, by taking it. Uh, But what God looks at is not so much the success that we have or perfection, I think even in walking that path, so much as the intention, our desire for him, that we strive uh, to enter by the narrow door. And uh, we see Christ himself fall under the weight and the burden of our sin, fall under the cross uh, three times. And so uh, I think we can expect that that would be true for us as well, bearing the weight and the burden of our own sin and struggling with it. And What is important, again, is our humility and our ability 
uh, to turn back and trust in the Lord and the grace that he offers. Uh, but discernment helps us to, uh, to see the path that God desires us to walk and that would lead to our sanctification, not necessarily that which fits our natural inclination or what would we would think would we would be well suited to or uh, we would have certain gifts or talents that would make us successful. Uh, that God might lead us upon a path that uh, is wholly unimaginable perhaps to us at another time in our life, but gradually begins to open doors for us or bring people into our lives who have an influence upon us that uh, help us to discern the path that God desires us to walk. And this is important, I think, uh, both in our own discernment, but for those who have the care of souls, not to, to overly focus upon things such as talent and ability, but rather, again, the desire for God. And uh, I think this is often overlooked in formation, as we've talked about uh, many times before. Uh, what's going to make a person a good servant of God is the love of Christ and love of others and the willingness to make oneself the slave and the servant of others, you know, not to exalt oneself through one's gifts or or eloquence. Number 106, in all the temptations that happen to us, the devil struggled to make us say or do something improper. And if they cannot do that, they stand quietly and suggest that we should offer God arrogant thanksgiving. So always seeking to draw us into saying or doing something improper, whether it's in our speech or behavior, uh, and to not be guarded, as it were, in our speech, or not to be attentive to our actions, the boundaries that we should have uh, between ourselves and others that would be appropriate as well. And if they can't undo us in this fashion, uh, to lead us even to thank God, to praise God uh, for certain gifts that he's given us, but to do it in such a way uh, that we are glorying in them uh, as they are manifest in our lives and uh, in the things that we do. So the focus is really upon ourselves, uh, very much like the Pharisee in the uh, temple, uh, Pharisee in the publican, uh, the story, where the Pharisee gives a kind of list of all the, the things that he's done. And uh, and if, if he thanks God for anything, it's to thank, thank him for not making him like the sinner the tax collector who was there in the temple as well. And so uh, one of the great temptations for us, I think, is to take the focus off of ourselves and our own hearts and need for conversion and to compare ourselves with the other. And so we are become conceited. Uh, one of the lines in the prayer of St. Ephraim tonight at the pre-sanctified liturgy uh, was spare us from um, idle chatter and uh, as well as the lust for power. But idle chatter, uh, you know, this shifting one's focus upon others that often leads us into detraction or calumny, uh, slandering others to diminish them in, in the eyes we, of, uh, of other people and take a morbid delight in that. And so we can offer God a kind of arrogant thanksgiving 
you know, thanking him for his gifts, but uh, for, in a sense, raising us up above uh, others in our own estimation, at least. Number 107, those whose minds are on things above, after the separation of soul and body, ascend on high in two parts. But those whose minds are on things below, go below. For souls separated from the body, there is no intermediate place. For all God's creations, only the soul has its being in something else, in a body, and not in itself. And it is wonderful how it can exist outside that in which it received its being. So first the soul, then the body, to resurrection. And uh, this is our desire the you know we are embodied spirits and we have to have a kind of clarity about this you know when we are raised up it's not into a kind of collective that our uniqueness as human beings is something that always remains with us even as we live in perfect communion with god and one another and uh, we see this revealed in the ascension of christ uh, our humanity is raised up uh, to participate in the very life of the Trinity. And it's a risen body. We don't know exactly what that's going to be. Paul warns his followers not to ruminate about it and not to overthink it, uh, because we don't know exactly what that's going to be like. Uh, what we do see, though, is how Christ manifested himself at the resurrection. And, uh, and you know, from this, we also catch a glimpse of the, the glory that is to be ours and that we are to share in. And uh, so when we have our minds and our hearts fixed upon the things of heaven, uh, then when we, we die, uh what is raised is the whole of us i think is what john is trying to tell us here uh and that's an important thing all that has not been assumed has not been saved that christ assumes the fullness of who and what we are as human beings in order to transform it in order to raise it up and uh and so it's an extraordinary thing that God would take upon himself our humanity. I think we don't sit in awe of that mystery enough. You know, we focus quite a bit certainly on the crucifixion and the manifestation of the selfless love there. But uh, the incarnation, the, the self-emptying, uh, he who through, who through, the universe through whom the universe was made uh, you know becomes infants becomes a tiny infant one who is wordless uh takes upon himself the fullness of that humanity and and not simply in a passing way it's not as though he cloaks himself with it and doesn't embrace it in uh its fullness or put it on as a mask. I think what John and the fathers as a whole want us to understand the, the depths of God's love, not only in redeeming us from our sin, but raising us up to something greater than 
the original innocence that Adam and Eve had, that we are raised up to share now in the fullness of the life of the Trinity. Deification is what we are called to, participation by grace in the very life of God. And to see God, as John says, face to face uh, with no impediment there, uh, to gaze upon him as the sun does. And um, we don't do a very good job, I think, in catechizing in this regard, uh, holding out what God has given to us and made possible for us. You know, Christianity is often reduced, as we've talked about in the past, mm -hmm. to an ideology or reduced to morality and or a philosophy. And in this, we often lose sight of the reality that has been revealed to us, how God has made himself manifest to us, but what he's embraced on our behalf that transfigures, transforms our very existence as human beings. So what we would seize in arrogance by pride, uh, tempted by the devil, one, devil in the garden, God in his mercy takes upon himself uh, uh, the, the fullness of the weight and the burden of that, but at the same time uh, allows us, if we humble ourselves, to be exalted to share in the fullness of that life. And we are very quick, I think, to talk about hell and to talk about punishment. And um, I think a lot of that is a projection uh, of you know, certainly the fears and anxieties that we have, but uh, a projection of a kind of arrogance, arrogant judgment out on others, that if we knew and understood love, the last thing that we would desire for another would be the experience of hell. And we would grasp with greater clarity uh, what the scriptures tell us, that God desires the salvation of all. And uh, I think when we limit our vision in that arrogance, we, we fail to see that. And so it breeds a kind of fear and anxiety within us. Uh, we set up a kind of resistance to ourselves in God because we remain in a position of fear and never come to taste the sweetness of that love. And, uh, and so I think, you know, I've talked often about our seminary formation, but I think our whole uh, practice of catechesis has to shift and how we evangelize, how it is that we bear witness to the reality of God manifesting himself to us in his son. And, you know, through the incarnation and our redemption through, through it and through the cross, that this has to be revealed to the world uh, in and through what we become. You know, words are never something that penetrate the, the human heart as what people see and experience for themselves in the other. And, uh, and so, you know, you hear saints like Therese of Lisieux say, you know, one bit of suffering embraced with faith or humility is greater than the most eloquent of sermons. 
that when a person is conformed and configured to Christ, then they become confessors of the gospel, confessors of Christ. And so much, you know, we present our faith in an abstract fashion. And I know this is a bit of a digression, but I think this is part of what I love about the fathers is that they pull us away from that again and again to practice uh, the practice of the faith and the word orthodoxy, just as a little reminder, you know, one of the deeper meanings of it is right glory. And, you know, there's certainly right worship there, right teaching, but right glory is really what it is that we are seeking to participate in the glory of God made manifest in his son. And, uh, how does one speak of that and bear witness to that unless one becomes that for others, unless we become Christ for others? And so what is spoken of here in the ascetic life in the fathers, again, is not about self-discipline. It's you know not simply about overcoming the passions or sin. It's opening ourselves in such a way that the grace of God can transform us, that we might become what God desires us to be, that we would become as he sees us and desires us and experience the life that he desires us to experience. And, uh, you know, I, I think our whole way of catechesis, you know, you don't learn this through memorization. You don't learn it through books, to be honest with you. I think we, we learn it in liturgy, and I think this is why it's uh, so emphasized within the life of the church. You know, this encounter, this experience with, uh, of, with the living God as he gives himself to us in confession and in and through the love of others. And, you know, if, if we're reading all of this without this understanding, then it's not going to bear much fruit for us. Number 108, pious daughters are born of pious mothers, and the mothers are born of the Lord. And it is not unwise to apply this rule in the contrary sense. So pious daughters are born of pious mothers, that again, it is through example that, you know, that holiness and love are learned and experienced. And the, the opposite is true, John says here too. In, an impious daughter is born of an impious mother that uh, we learn through what we see. Uh, mimesis, imitation, uh, mimicking. We, we learn by seeing what those who love us and raise us show us. Uh, there's, again, you know, nothing more powerful than seeing a mother or father at the foot of a bed praying or at liturgy receiving the Holy Eucharist with devotion or shedding the kind of tears of repentance that John and the others father, other fathers speak of uh, or living their life in such a way that it is centered upon God. These are all the things that are enduring and allows a person to make their way through life and not lose sight of their dignity and their identity in Christ.
everything else can be undermined very quickly. Number 109, Moses, or rather God himself, forbids the coward to go out to battle, lest the spiritual, I'm sorry, lest the last spiritual error be worse than the first bodily fall. And this is right. So Moses forbids the coward to go out to battle, that, you know, to receive what God has given us in his only begotten son. And yet lack the, the courage to embrace that reality in its fullness is, John is saying, is worse than the first spiritual error, the first fall. And uh, so, you know, this is an ex extraordinary thing. You know, we've heard him before say, you know, nobody likes to go up against a plucky fighter. Uh, that we often don't emphasize courage in the spiritual life enough. Uh, I think this is why it's so important for us to have the concrete examples of the saints. Uh, one of the things my mom hates is when I post the stories of the life of the martyrs. And, uh, you know, on our spiritual calendar, it's almost you know, every day. And, you know, granted, the stories can be brutal and, you know, individuals flayed alive for the faith. And, you know, individuals like John the Baptist, you know, all these figures, you know, John in the East in particular, the West holds Joseph up as sort of the, the prominent male figure, but th that had never really been the case within the East. That John the Baptist, if you see the the images, uh, iconic images, the Jesus, the Christ in the center, and then Mary and John the Baptist on either side of him. And John is always seen as the mo model of the ascetic life, of, of, of virtue, virtus, manliness, in the sense of the courage that is needed in the spiritual battle. And I think it's important for us to, to put out these images uh, that are challenging uh, because people often will respond to that. You know, that which is often most precious, is most precious costs the most from us in terms of the investment of self. And why is it that we can appreciate that in every other area of our life? But some, some, for some reason, in faith, in the thing that is most important, eternal life, sharing in uh, the glory of God, that we minimize the exercise of the faith, so asceticism, and uh, we make, in, in doing so, we uh, make ourselves impotent. You know, we don't open ourselves radically to the action of the spirit within us to transform us and to allow us to bear witness to the faith in a courageous fashion. And so if we are not forming ourselves and forming priests and religious and children with this understanding of presenting to them the fullness of Christianity, which includes the cross, and so demands courage, you know, we are not going 
to produce a generation of saints. Again, this is what the church needs. We don't need another book. We don't need a program, you know, on the faith. We need saints who are living witnesses of the gospel, living icons of the gospel. Uh, those who are willing to sh shed their blood for the faith. And uh, so, you know, priests should be preaching about the saints often. Uh, certainly the scriptures, but uh, constantly talking about the saints and the witness that they give. Anybody have any comments so far? Other than my mom. <laughs> You're not allowed to talk about this one. <laughs> okay, let's move on to 110. The eyes of our body are a light for all the bodily members, and discernment, and the discernment of the divine virtues is the light for the mind. So just as our, our eyes give us the capacity to see all the things that are necessary for us to function as human beings to make our way in the world, discernment is our capacity, the vision necessary to pursue the life of virtue, to pursue life in Christ. Now, we move on to a section called on expert discernment, as if that wasn't difficult enough. Prepare yourself now to, to go to the next level. That was just the beginner, beginner's uh, phase. Number 110. As the heart parched by the heat pants for the streams, so monks long not only for a grasp of the good and divine will, but also for the knowledge of what is not purely God's will, or even for what is opposed to it. This is a subject that is extremely important for us and not easily explained, namely, for which our affairs should be done at once, without delay, and as soon as possible, according to him who said, woe to him who puts off from day to day, and from time to time, and again, what should be done with moderation and circumspection, as is advised by him who said, war is a matter for guidance. And again, let all things be done decently and in order. For it is not for everyone to decide quickly and precisely such fine points. Even the God-bearing David, who had the Holy Spirit speaking within him, prayed for this gift, and sometimes says, Teach me to do thy will, for thou art my God. And sometimes again, lead me in thy truth. And again, cause me to know, O Lord, the way wherein I should walk. For unto thee I have lifted up my soul from all the cares of life and passions and have raised it to thee, unto thee. So a monk longs not only uh, to grasp what is good, what is the divine will, uh, but how it is to get there, how God desires us to do it. And so that means also knowing what is opposed to it so that we can make our way toward God in the way that he desires, not only what seems to make sense to our own judgment, uh, what seems to be the right path. Sometimes that's not always going to be very clear, and the path that God desires us to walk 
that is sanctifying might not be a path that we want to walk. You know, uh, the, sometimes the crosses we give, we don't want, and we don't see how they could be sanctifying for us. And so to pray for this, to, to know what is the will of God, but what is opposed to it, the ways that we can get in the way of fulfilling what God desires from us, that he would raise us up and allow us to see the things that we need to see, what we need to perceive. And for every person, that's going to be something different. And, you know, I think this is why, you know, spiritual directors are so needed. Those who have uh, been formed themselves, who have discernment, but also the capacity to understand that God is not necessarily going to lead a person in the same way that they have been led. That each person is unique and struggles with their own particular crosses. And uh, so one has to be a competent guide uh, and being led by that same spirit of truth, not leading again, someone in accord with one's own wisdom. You know, it is, there are some disagreements like Teresa of Avila thought that it was more important to have an intelligent priest than, you know, a holy priest, somebody who had this capacity to guide with a kind of wisdom because she was hurt so many times by really terrible directors, those who could not understand her experience and often, uh, you know, sort of condemned her or treated her harshly because of these things or gave counsel that was not helpful. Uh, and I understand what she's saying there, but I think, you know, a person that is holy who has been purified by the grace of God and is guided by the Holy Spirit is, is going to be able to comprehend the things of God in such a way to communicate it even if it is communicated simply or even in silence. The silence of a holy individual can teach another about God. And this is where I think, you know, maybe the, the fathers differ with her uh, on this, she she had very little time for, you know, <laughs> those who were arrogant. I think more than than anything, and uh, and perhaps judged her even because she was a woman. That the experiences that she was having were, you know, a flight of fancy or hysteria, perhaps, and that. She, she was falling into delusion. And uh, so, you know, I think I would tend to see that as more as of the problem that then uh, certainly uh, lack of intelligence. Uh, I think it's, you want somebody who's humble and who's guided by the light of the Holy Spirit to guide you. Number 111. Those who wish to learn the will of God must first mortify their own will. Then having prayed to God with faith and guileless simplicity, and having asked the fathers or even the brothers with humility of heart and no thought of doubt, they should accept their advice as from the mouth of God, 
even if their advice be contrary to their own view, and even if those consulted are not very spiritual. For God is not unjust and will not lead astray souls who with faith and innocence humbly submit to the advice and the judgment of their neighbor. Even if those who are asked were brute beast, yet he who speaks is the immaterial and invisible one. Those who allow themselves to be guided by this rule without having any doubts are filled with great humility. For if someone unfolded his problem on a psaltery, much, how much better do you think can a rational mind and a reasonable soul teach than an inanimate object? So this might cause a little bit of consternation I think that, you know, John is saying here that we don't have, if we have set aside our own will, ego as well, you know, our own private judgment and putting that forward as our guide, uh, we've won a great deal of the battle. And that even if we have somebody guiding us who is not even particularly spiritual or particularly gifted, that God can still act through, you know, even through that ignorance or even through those words or reveal or manifest the truth to a person to help them understand through the, though even the words of the other be lacking. And he says, even if a wild beast, if you were to take a wild beast as your spiritual director, you're still being, you would be guided by the, the one who is immaterial and invisible. And this is how much they valued humility, that it, it is the humble soul who is lifted up and who will not be abandoned by, by God. And so if somebody uh, is a humble soul who's truly seeking God and desires him. Uh, and there are directors that are lacking, that one should not be filled with fear or anxiety. We've had this conversation a lot. How do you live in a generation where elders are few or very difficult to find and where there are few that seem to be schooled in the writings of the fathers, let alone living uh, what the fathers taught. And I think this is in a very important paragraph for us to hear and to understand that, you know, God has given us the fathers. He's given us the scriptures. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. The hardest thing for us to overcome in this spiritual life is our own will, our own pride. And if we're able to do that, then God will, again, guide us through those who are at hand. Always love that story about Ignatius of Loyola entrusting his future to the ass that he was riding on when right after his conversion. Do you guys remember that little story? Uh, <clears throat> for those who don't, he was just had converted. You know, he'd gone through the war, had been injured, had uh, converted to Christianity, and uh, he was riding on the road with and comes across uh, uh, a, a Muslim and who insults the Blessed Virgin Mary. And, you know, being, you know, a, a Spaniard, you know, honor, 
you know, was their big thing. And so he becomes so angry, he decides, I'm going to kill him. Uh, but to discern what he should do, he says, well, he sees the person who rides up ahead of him turn off into a town. And he says, well, if the ass turns into this road that leads to the town, then I'm going to kill this individual. And fortunately, the ass stayed upon the main road and bypassed the town. And it was the one thing that kept him from committing murder. And so it's an interesting example of what John is talking about here. Even if it's a beast who's guiding us, that God can act even through something such as, as this. And not that we should go out and do that or that I should ask my dogs for spiritual direction every morning. Although they've taught me a surprising bit. I've been shocked. I've learned things through having them that I never would have learned before. Uh, but the, the point is clear that God will not abandon uh, the humble soul. Rebecca writes, I think Teresa preferred the priest to be learned rather than just intelligent because she thought that even holy priests could be misled. A learned priest would be better able to communicate the infallible teaching of the church in her view. Yeah, I, you know, I, I wouldn't uh, question that, you know, that uh, there is a wisdom there in Teresa. And uh, and I, I understand what she's saying, and it's well taken. I think she, there was so much damage that she experienced uh, from those, uh, even within the church, who uh, were intelligent, but not didn't have the kind of wisdom to guide her that she needed. Uh, Michael writes, lack of elders, we miss not having enough monks and nuns available in communities. I absolutely agree. You know, I think if the if the bishops wanted to strengthen the church, they would set out immediately to create uh, uh, monasteries and convents within their dioceses or eparchies uh, where, you know, the spiritual life could be fostered and where there would be an availability there for counsel. And this has become sorely lacking, uh, and especially within the last 60 years. Pittsburgh in particular was the hub of so many mother houses of communities, and they've all been reduced to, to nothing. Uh, it's, it's a very sad reality. And most of the men's communities moved out of Pittsburgh. Uh, for one reason or, or another. And there can be a kind of parochialism at times that emerges that uh, doesn't value uh, the charism of the religious. And I think whenever that happens, it's incredibly destructive to the life of the church. And we're seeing the fruit of that now. Okay. Let's see. Number 112, on account of self-will, many have not accepted the perfect and easy blessing mentioned above and have tried to discover what was pleasing to the Lord of themselves and in themselves, they have handed on to us many and various judgments concerning this matter. And so, you know, there have been 
And I, I think, especially in our day, those who seek to guide themselves in the spiritual life. And uh, this is a very dangerous thing to do, you know, to certainly have a confessor, to ask somebody to hold something before another for their objective uh, opinion on it, for their judgment on it is an important thing. We don't see all ends. And no matter how much experience we have in this spiritual life, when we seek to lead ourselves, uh, we're going to uh, fall into a pit and we become easy fodder for, for the demons uh, when we, we lean upon our own judgment and own judgment alone. There's something there about humbling ourselves before another and laying before them what it is that we're struggling with and being able to say, I just don't understand what God is doing or why. And, uh, and it's even worse when we think we do understand what God wants and that others are obstacles to that. Uh, that's the harder thing to overcome too, uh, to, to wait and, and to, to be patient in the face, in the face of that. And sometimes it's only wise counsel that can pull us back uh, from that kind of thinking. Number 113. Some of those who were seeking the will of God laid aside all attachments. They submitted to the Lord their own thought about this or that inclination of the soul. I mean, whether to perform an action or to resist it. They submitted their mind, stripped it of its own will, to the Lord, offering fervent prayer for a set number of days. In this way, they attained to a knowledge of his will, either through the noetic mind, noetically, communicating with their mind, or through the complete disappearance of their soul, from their soul, from their cherished intention, of their cherished intention. So interesting. So if a person finds themselves in a set of circumstances where there isn't another, that they can set their will aside and submit themselves to the Lord completely through the ascetic life, a life of prayer, fasting, uh, and place it all within his hands uh, and do this for a particular period of time. And John's saying there, that uh, that the noetic not mind noetically communicating with their mind. So the, the mind of God uh, uh, with perfect clarity manifesting to them the path that he desires for them. And John says, really those who uh, have experienced this and do this well, have the intention that they even first set out seeking to understand disappear from their minds. And it's an interesting idea because I think we are so often guided in our lives. This is, this is a, worth stopping and reflecting on. We're so often guided in our life by this sense of producti productivity, creativity, things that we see that we think would be good or would be holy or would strengthen the church uh, or strengthen ourselves or be good for ourselves, a good path for us. And we can begin to 
pursue this with a kind of zeal, but a zeal that is rooted within our own hearts are uh, being attached to this idea, this particular intention and of making it come about or finding a way to have it come about. And John is saying that, you know, when the mind and the heart is united to God, then these kinds of intentions fade away. And one finds oneself being guided solely by the mind of God through every step of their life. So they're, they're moving ahead, being attentive to God and seeing things with such a clarity because the eye of the soul has been so purified and they're living in such deep intimacy with him. They're not being driven by this kind of willfulness that is even guided by those things that is good that are good in us. This capacity, as I said, for creativity or productivity uh, that often can take hold of our minds and our hearts. And there's so much that is often done, you know, in the name of God or for the church or for souls that I've often wondered about, you know, do, do they really bear any fruit? Does it really have anything to do with the kingdom? Or is this really a manifestation of our busyness, of our need to feel this kind of productivity of accomplishing something rather than being something, being someone? As if being an individual who is completely united to God, who has set aside self-will, who's guided so fully by his spirit that he manifests the kingdom, to the other we why do we have a need so often it seems to lean upon what i think if we were clear about it are our crutches or a sense of something that gives us a sense of security of power of you know uh of a greater capacity to reach out to others as if God could not do that in an instant through the, the mind and the heart of a holy soul. Again, you know, we see this manifested so beautifully in the lives of the saints. You know, St. Francis of Assisi, you know, wasn't running around with a laptop or an iPhone in his hand and, you know, and, you know, was living out under the stars half of the time and, you know, had nothing and yet has shaped the minds and the hearts of the faithful, you know, over the centuries by his, you know, living witness. And you see what I'm getting at here. And I think what John is speaking about here, that the evil one, I think, in drawing our focus away from God and what we've become in Christ, leads us back to lean upon things of the world and that are the creation of our own hand as if what God supplies is insufficient. And, you know, priests went through this, like at the Second Vatican Council, I think, and probably prior to that, that simply being a priest was insufficient that they had to become something else for the life of the church to be truly effective, to truly uh, be productive, had to become social workers. And so, or had to become psychologists, had 
you know, to have all the this capacity to function in multiple ways in order to be a good priest, in order to have an impact. And, you know, I think it's a very worldly way of viewing things. And we've even talked here about the MDiv, you know, the degree that one gets from seminary that, you know, it's called an MDiv for a reason. You know, it's a master of divinity, but I think the parallel there to MD is pretty clear. They wanted to establish a kind of credibility on an intellectual level. And uh, seminaries have to be certified, you know, as academic institutions. They have to be set up in a certain way, have a certain curriculum that they follow in order to be legitimate. But, you know, does that have any bearing on what John is, is saying here? That God, so united to the heart, can give this person the capacity to let go of those intentions and trust wholly in the intention of God for them. That God will lead them to pursue what is necessary for their own sanctification and for the care of others. And you know, sometimes when we slow things down in our life and don't overthink them, overanalyze them, is when that simple truth becomes clear to us. The people that are in need around us with whom we live, but perhaps escape our attention. The, the things that are really needed to uh, care uh, for the care of souls uh, uh, within, within a parish. And it's often when our, our minds are, are not set upon Christ and on the kingdom first, I think that we step back and we begin to rely more and more upon ourselves. And what we tell ourselves, you know, gives us religious, uh, you know, a kind of, um, uh, a religious credibility. You know, it's sort of like falling into a kind of Phariseeism again. Um, and so we've, and I, you know, I think St. Francis saw this, you know, a movement away from the, the, the simple joy of the faith that really became an impediment to communicating that to others, but also blinded those of faith from attending to the poor. This is so similar to the practice I learned from Muslim friends where one fasts and prays three days before taking, making a decision that God may clarify what action one should take. The fast is called uh, istkahara, meaning the right path. It's so good to rest in God's wisdom before taking action. Right, you know, I think, um, you know, we often fall into this path of, upon this path of analyzing, but often there we're still discerning in accord with our own judgment and perception rather than listening. And we've talked over and over again here about the word obedience, ab adore, to listen to God. And how does one humble the mind and heart to be able to do that in such a way other than through prayer and fasting? and engaging in that in a very deep fashion.
again, this is why, you know, someone, I can't remember who made the comment about the need for monasteries in our day. I think this is one of the reasons for that need. You know, those who are engaged in that with a kind of constancy in their life, like the Desert Fathers. Okay, any comments on that? I know it was a long digression, but see, Michael writes, modernity and technology have much to blame since many things can be created ex nihilo, tempting, uh, tempts thinking ye shall be like gods. I think so. I mean, I, we can't deem and shouldn't demonize technology or, you know, the, the things of this world. But I think the demons will make use of them uh, in such a way that we then make them idols, that our identity, you know, uh, the, the focus of our life depends upon our having certain things and uh, rather than living in a certain fashion. And, you know, people were really unhinged by St. Francis's uh, radical poverty. But I think what it bore witness to is the, the deeper freedom that comes from relying radically upon the grace of God. And I think Christ shows us this too, when he sends out the apostles and he doesn't allow them to take anything with them on those first journeys where they are bearing witness to the gospel, because he wants them to understand that what is the source of the fruit of their labors is the Holy Spirit guiding them. So they aren't to rest upon anything, you know, not to take extra clothing with them, no extra money, but to tr entrust themselves solely to the guidance of the Holy, Holy Spirit. And, you know, because we have so much, we tend to rely upon those things. And, you know, working in campus ministry for so many years, that was an enormous temptation because, uh, and it's gotten worse over time, because you, when you come into a university, students are given so much now. This is why college is so expensive. You know, there's a glut of administration, but they're they're giving students all these perks, you know, computers, they live in these great dorms, you know, they have all these things available to them, constant programming for them, sports, other kinds of entertainment. And so religious groups that are present within that context often feel this need to compete with that, to be able to sort of engage and and to break through the noise of all the other voices calling out to the students, come be a part of our group or what we do. And so there can be this profound temptation uh, to, you know, engage in a kind of ministry where you're selling something, where it feels like you're selling something. And we can rationalize it you know, in so many different ways. You know, every campus ministry learns that you, you aren't gonna get groups unless you feed the students, unless you offer food. Uh, but it, it sort of builds on itself from there. You know, pilgrimages, you know, travels abroad, Rome trips, Holy, you know, Holy Land, all these kind of things have to be a part of this big package. And we don't do a good job 
you know, simply in presence and focusing on making Christ present on the campus, and again, in a concrete and tangible way. And that movement to the intellectualized presentation of the faith is, is even greater as well in that setting. Who was the saint, one of the missionaries? Was it Francis Xavier? Francis Xavier who wanted to go out through the universities of France and scream like a maniac, you know, telling them that, you know, that they're, you know, he's baptizing like 3000 people at a time and things like that and couldn't, you know, say his bravery daily because there weren't enough missionaries. And, you know, he was so, you know, seeing that reality and the souls that needed to be tended to wanted to go throughout the universities and, you know, scream at them to wake them up. You know, what are all your degrees doing for the kingdom? Okay. So, you know, don't go away saying that Father's David, David's anti-intellectual or a Luddite or something like that. We're using computer after all. <laughs> so, but uh, you, you get the point here. And it's hard to pull back and to place one trust in one's trust in God in the way that, that John is speaking about here. To let him be the source of our intentions. David writes, I volunteered for catechism, but was surprised there was no assignment with a spiritual director. And it seemed to become more of a quasi-entertaining push by those who were the directors by the parish. The focus was keeping the kids coming back and making faith fun. It seems so different from my experience here in Spain. Yeah, you know, I think that is often the case, you know, to present attractive programs, to entertain, uh, and to have casino nights and all these different kinds of things to keep people coming or to create community. And after, when I became Catholic and experienced the, like the sacramental worldview and the Eucharist, where we become one in receiving the Holy Eucharist and to hear, but at the same time, this constant refrain about creating community, if we would simply celebrate the liturgy well and beautifully and enter into that fully, we would know the deepest communion with, with each other. And if we were we had the gospel truly preached to us, again, we would be living it fully and engaging each other as Christ. And so creating community through all of these, you know, uh, means of entertainment or whatever it might be, bear, I think often bears witness to a certain kind of lack uh, uh, of, of power within our, our faith a lack of conviction. What I'm glad to hear about, you know, I talked to, uh, we're down to the last minute here, but I talked to the Byzantine priest out in the Phoenix eparchy. And it was, it was surprising because they're small, but they're growing. And uh, there was a young couple that I knew here in Pittsburgh that had moved out there and had, you know, they'd become Byzantine and were going to his parish. And he knew them. He said, they're the greatest parishioners. And he said, these the young people today, he said, they're not interested in fundraisers. 
making pierogies, spaghetti dinners. They will not do it. He said they will tithe and they will lead groups on the, the faith retreats, things such as that, or out, outreach activities, but they have no interest in sort of th this kind of, uh, I don't know what it is, how you would even describe it today. Uh, you know, these 50, these ways of uh, engaging in parish life that maybe were, were fruitful when those communities were really tight ethnically and in all sorts of ways, where the church was the center of cultural life for the people. Uh, those things were effective then, but they are not effective now. And they're not a tool of evangelization. And I think the Latin Rite Church, I think, is a leap ahead, at least in the sense of involving the laity. And I was glad to hear in evangelization. I was glad to hear that there was, was taking place among the Byzantines out, out west, that there is an evangelical zeal there to bear witness to Christ. And, you know, this is what we need to capture first by living. Uh, what did Ambrose write? I'm not young and feel or more, or more or less that way. Somebody wrote, oh, hold on for a second. I missed a couple here. Uh, pierogi making brings my parish together. <laughs> okay. Anthony, you're a troublemaker. You're a paisan. You're making pierogi. You should be making spaghetti. Oh, my Slovak buddy, the sweet little <laughs> Ukrainian lady. They taught me to make pierogi. They taught me to make uh, a halushki. I'm going to learn how to make pierogi sometime. I'm sure your, of it. Your ancestors, you, you would have been yes. kicked out of the Italian club. It, it, my my father had some problems with it. Okay, five minutes. The Latin Mass community also see the young coming because lack of fun things. Uh, Ambrose, right? I'm not young and feel more or less that way. Right. You know, I think again, not to beat up on these things. I mean, we can have them, but I think we need something far more radical. To bring the faith to life. Okay, so that brings us to 30. Sorry for the rambles, uh, but have a great week, everybody, and keep me in your prayers, and I'll be praying for you, and uh, we have the beginning of our St. Moses Kitchen, the first uh, opening of it here this Saturday, if you can keep that in prayer, uh, to serve the people here in our neighborhood, and uh, a little bit of a new venture here, so if you wouldn't mind praying for that. Okay, so won't we close as always with our Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. Amen. Lord God bless you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.